I'd like you to turn to Malachi chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 10 through 16 this morning. While you're finding that, one of the things that we talk about when pastors get together, when the staff gets together, is what part family plays in, in our day, uh, what part family plays in our life. And I'm kind of fond of telling new staff members that uh, family comes first, over church sometimes. And I got to tell you something, I always get pushback on that. I've had other pastors say, no, family comes before church. Uh, For those of you that are in ministry, you know that sometimes church comes before family. It's just the way it is. Sometimes the phone rings at dinner time. You can't sit down and have dinner. Uh, Sometimes you've got date night planned and something comes up and you have to cancel. It doesn't mean that the family's not important. It just means that in the moment, the priorities might change. So uh, we're very fond of talking about family in evangelical 21st century America. Uh, But sometimes I wonder if we even know what it really is. Now, I I think I I may be preaching to the choir here because I think think the folks here at Warrington Bible Fellowship have a pretty good idea on what the family is and, and how it fits in their life and how it fits in the church life. But Malachi is going to maybe challenge us a little bit on that today. So we're we're in this series in Malachi. The first week we talked about there were two types of people, people of God's favor and and people of God's fury, and you didn't want to be on that side of being people of God's fury. The second week we talked about that that came up because the priests of Israel in Malachi's time had kind of shoved God to the back burner and put him on uh, a low priority and were taking it for granted and it showed up in their worship and it showed up in polluted sacrifices, uh, imperfect sacrifices that they were offering up to the Father. And we found out that pollution hurts, that it can hurt your, your spiritual welfare, it can hurt uh, your physical welfare. Uh, it, it's just harmful all around. And, and that we could make uh, the same mistake if we're not careful of allowing things to creep into our lives that just aren't healthy for us spiritually. So when we see these things, when, when Malachi as the last of the Old Testament prophets, actually the last of the Old Testament prophets before John the Baptist, John the Baptist really was the last of the Old Testament prophets, uh, but Malachi comes forward and he starts saying these things to, to the priests and they're, they're, they're not a condemnation, they're a warning. God puts these things in front of us to caution us to look at the path that we're on, to examine ourselves, to hold ourselves to a scriptural standard and everything we had. These people, these priests, all they really had to do to, to come out of this situation was to repent. God's given us this tool to, to deal with the sin in our lives, repentance and confession. It wasn't perfected back then. They still had to do sacrifices and that sort of thing. But as we move into the New Testament, the, the final sacrifice is made. And what's left is repentance, asking forgiveness for God, uh, from God for doing the things we do. So, so these are cautions, they're warnings. Uh, but they, they come with, with consequences. If you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. So we see this throughout Malachi. And that's what we saw last week, the consequences that the priests suffered for putting God on the back shelf, for making him a low priority. Uh, And 
in that message last week, we, we learned that we have to guard ourselves against doing the same thing. And the reason that that applies to us is because just as Malachi talks about the priests and the Levitical priesthood, brothers and sisters, we are a nation of priests. We are a royal priesthood. Every one of us has a ministry. Every one of us has a part that we play in the role of the church. Now, we see these things rolling out, and as I'm watching us go out into the community, and and I'm seeing people step up and and slot into positions that maybe they were a little bit uncomfortable with a year ago, and watching people work together, I'm, I'm just watching us come together as a body and for people to understand the parts that they play. And I've said it a million times, I'll say it again. Some of us are going to be the workers. Some of us are going to be the evangelists. Some of us are going to be the prayers. Some of us are going to be the support. Some are going to teach children's ministry on Sunday morning. And when we rise up and offer up our time and our talents and our treasure for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's name, the church begins to function on all cylinders. And we see the word going forth. We see the kingdom being built. That's what we're here for, brothers and sisters. So it's happening among us because because we are priests. That requires a little shift in thinking alone right there because I know that most of us don't feel like we're priests. But that's what the word of God tells us. So that's what we have to work in. So this week, we're going to find out how those warnings, those cautions, uh, those admonitions begin to work themselves out in our lives as we take a look at what the perception of the family was back in Malachi's time. We're talking about the 4th century B.C., and uh, we're in the transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Our sermon title today is Guard Yourselves Part 2. It's part of our series, The Coming Messenger. And so here's, here's the truth that I want you to hold on to today. I'm supposed to have a proposition. That's what all the, what all the pastor sermon books tell me. So this is the proposition. This is the challenge for you to absorb and apply to your lives as you walk out that door. The family is a reflection of the church. The family is a reflection of the church. And I hope to be able to clarify this for you as we go forward. Our passage today breaks down into three sections. uh, And what we're going to look at are the three major attributes of the covenant of marriage. And here they are. Number one, it is dangerous. It's a dangerous covenant. That's verses 10 through 12. Number two, it is sacred. Verses 13 and 14. And number three, it is, brothers and sisters, and somebody's got to say the amen to this, it is hard work. It is hard work, you know. And, and I know when we're young and our eyes are lit up with the, the light of love and everything, we think that, that just this warm, fuzzy feeling I have inside is going to carry me through any hardship. And, and i got to tell you something, that goes out the door somewhere around six months after the wedding ceremony. <laughs> and we find out that it's, it's hard work. We have to apply ourselves. Some participation is required. We don't just sit there and be married and wait for the blessings to roll in. We have to work at our relationships. We have to work at our spiritual uh, lives. We have to work at our physical lives. It's hard work. So let's take a look at this. 
And we find out that, that God is serious about marriage. So serious that the covenant of marriage is a dangerous commitment. In verse 10, Malachi, the prophet, says, God inspires him to say, have we not all one father? It, aren't, aren't we, and, and now he's not talking to everybody in creation, he's talking to those who belong to God, those chosen people who have been set aside by God. And have, have we all not one father? And we see the first indication that there's something going on about the family here. Aren't we all brothers and sisters? Aren't we all one in him? Has not God created us? He formed us in the womb. Why then are we faithless to one another? Now, there's the accusation. We're all part of the same family. We all have been created by the same creator. And so why are we not walking in that? Why are we not practicing this, this idea that we're part of the family of God? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, you know what's been happening in Malachi's time. People have been marrying outside of the faith. They've been worshiping other gods. We found out that the priests were offering up these tainted sacrifices, but the priests only offer what people have been giving them. So it means the people have been bringing tainted sacrifices in. So we see all this evidence that God has just been kicked to the curb. And now they're marrying people that God specifically said, don't marry them. Now the reason that God told them not to marry outside the faith was because that the people that they marry would then lure them away from the one true God and have them worship other gods. And you know what happens when we find ourselves in those situations? Well, that won't happen to me. It happened to Solomon. <laughs> it happened to Solomon, the wisest man ever created by God, got lured away from worshiping his God to worshiping the God of pagan nations. You know, when you go through the Old Testament and read about the high places, the king the king was, was good, and, and he did all these reforms and everything, but he didn't remove the high places. The high places in the, the promised land were established by Solomon. The high places were places where people worshipped other gods. You can stand on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and a half a mile away is one of the primary high places in Jerusalem. And Solomon had a temple set up there and practiced sacrifices there. So God says, don't do this. Don't marry outside of the faith. It's not just a commandment. God is trying to show us something. He's trying to show us that we're set apart, that we are a strange people. And I think if you look around here, you'll find out that's true. I mean, we are a strange people, aren't we? <laughs> we do weird stuff. The, the, the world looks at us and goes, I can't believe you believe that. I can't believe you get up early every Sunday morning and go to church. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> I can't believe, I can't believe that, that you're, you're so old-fashioned and outmoded. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the old-fashioned and outmoded in a bit. But we're a strange people. We're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be the exemplars for the world and what a godly person looks like. And God says when we are faithless to one another, 
when we move outside of that marriage relationship, that we are profaning the covenant of our fathers. And just so that they're not sitting here going, well, that's not me. I haven't done that. In verse 11, he said, Judah, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. Judah, chosen by God. The apple of God's eye, Jerusalem. Tainted by worship to foreign gods. It's absolutely incredible after everything they've been through. Okay, so, so the commitment's been tainted. They profane the sanctuary. Why, I mean, why is this dangerous? Because nothing seems to have happened yet. I mean, there haven't really been any consequences levied on them. And, and, and they've got God on the back burner anyway. So you could see them sitting there going, well, it's okay, he's mad at me, you know, there are other gods. I'll just go with them. I mean, when you slip that far, that, that's the way your mind starts thinking. I, I, don't we run into that? I, I mean, we, we, we begin to slip a little bit and, and maybe you slip a little bit more and then you kind of get embarrassed about it and then you, you think, well, it's not that bad and then... And, you know, that's what happens to church attendance, isn't it? I missed a Sunday. <gasps> I missed a Sunday. I'll go next week. Oh, I missed another Sunday. I didn't, I didn't really like all those people anyway. Uh, I missed another Sunday. You know, I've been thinking about going to another church. I missed another Sunday. It's okay. God understands. You see how easy it is to fall into this stuff? The people in Malachi's time had hundreds of years to do it. So why is it dangerous? Verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. This marriage covenant that we're talking about has to be taken seriously. Now, again, we have to understand the, the environment that, that the, the Jews of Malachi were in. The, the, their faith centered on the temple. Their, their remittance from sin centered on the sacrifices that were offered at the temple. And maybe, maybe they weren't taking everything as seriously as they could, but it was a culture they were in. So we find out that when they go outside of this marriage relationship and what they're doing is they, these people have been married inside the faith and they're getting divorced and marrying again outside the faith. So God says through Malachi, when you do that, you're cut off. And it doesn't matter what you bring to the sanctuary I'm not going to accept it. For the Jew, it means there is no remittance of sin. For the Jew, that means shame. 
dishonor. And that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today, but I'll tell you something. Back then, it was everything. We don't understand the culture of shame. As a matter of fact, we kind of rail against it, don't we, as a culture? You shouldn't be ashamed of anything. Well, there were things to be ashamed of back then, and it had weight. It had consequences with it. God says, you do these things, I cut you off. Your sacrifice means nothing. Marriage should be taken seriously. It shouldn't be treated casually because it's dangerous to do so. So the commitment is, is not just dangerous, it is sacred, our, our second attribute. It's so sacred and holy that God rejects the worship of those who profane it. Now, he hinted at that, but in, in verse 13, he goes in a little bit more, with a bit more detail. And, and this second thing you do, the first thing you do is you're marrying outside the, 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 the faith. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So they're crying out to the Lord. How come you're not accepting this? They know who their father is. They just don't have the respect and the reverence for him that they should have. So what happens, watch this, is everything's fine until they get in trouble. And then they're crying out to God. I got to confess I've done that before. Like, everything's fine. I don't have to read. I don't have to do my study. I don't have to go to church. I have to... Oh, wait a minute. I've got a tax audit coming up. <laughs> God help me. And all of a sudden, I could become the most religious person in the block. It's our human nature. We take God for granted. We put him on the back burner. We kind of chug along, enjoying ourselves and doing things we know we shouldn't do. Then we hit a wall somewhere and we cry out. You know, the incredible thing is God is so loving and so forgiving that he answers. Doesn't he? That might not always be the answer we're looking for, but he answers because, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but because God has made that commitment to us. And he's faithful when we're not. So that's, that's what these people are doing. They realize that their worship is ineffective, it's empty. They're feeling spiritually dry. They know there should be an intimate relationship between them and their father, but they're not feeling it, not because he's distant, but because they have distanced themselves from him. And they're crying out. God says, well, you've done everything that I told you not to do. And this commitment that we're talking about, this marriage covenant is sacred and holy. And God says, and I will reject you if you profane it. Huh. Now, how do they respond? And the way they respond has become typical of Malachi's time. 
Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? They're like, why are you doing this? You can't understand what the problem is. I mean, we turned to you, didn't we? We called out to you, didn't we? They, they begin making demands upon God. God, here are the things I expect you to do for me, and you're not doing them. And yeah, maybe I slipped up here and there and everything, but you see, and the, the problem with this is, is not that they're saying, why aren't you doing it? The problem that they have is there's no contriteness in what they're saying. There's no repentance there's nothing of a heart that is being changed and turns back, turned back towards God. They're asking for explanations. We ever do that? God, why don't you hear me? I prayed God's not answering my prayer. Well, maybe he is. I mean, he says he would, doesn't he? Maybe we're just not getting the answer we want. But you say, why does he not... Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So the covenant that we're talking about is established by God. This isn't something that men have come up with. This is something that God has ordained. And it doesn't do any good to get self-righteous about this. God says, why, why are you in this situation? Because I was there when you made the commitment. I was the one who structured the covenant. And I witnessed it. I am the legal forensic evidence that you've made this commitment and you have violated it. It's a holy commitment. God is present in the marriage ceremony. Whether we acknowledge him or not. Talking to a friend of mine, I said, you know, the scripture says that he created all of us in the womb. He said, not me. <laughs> I went, oh, <laughs> okay. Well, you know, he doesn't believe scripture, so I get where he's coming from. But whether he believes in scripture or not doesn't have any impact on whether or not God created him. And where I've been trying to go with my friend is, you will answer to him one day. Not me. I won't answer to him. Yes, you will. Whether or not you answer him is not dependent on your belief in him. You will believe sooner or later. And, and I've had to say my concern for you, my friend, is that it's going to be later. It's going to be too late to do anything about it. So God has established the marriage covenant, and I'll tell you how in just a second, God inhabits the marriage ceremony. He does something supernatural and miraculous. His holy hand is on the covenant. And that makes the covenant sacred. So once we understand that it's sacred, once we understand that it is dangerous, then we will also understand that the covenant is hard work. And, and that brings us to the pivotal verse in this passage here. In verse 15, did he not make them one? Did he not make the people that stood and made that commitment under the covenant that God created, didn't he make them one? Well, this comes from Genesis 2 where the marriage union is described. You're familiar with this passage. Uh, 23 and 24, Genesis 2. 
Then the man said, I, I mean, God created the man. He's out there naming the animals and all this. God says, none of these animals are suitable for you. Uh, so he puts the man to sleep, takes a rib and forms a woman, brings her to the man. The man says, oh, this is a woman because she, she's flesh of my flesh. And that's what it says in 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. That's the man's words. And God's words are, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become what? It's supernatural. It's a miracle. They become united in a physical, spiritual way. God does something. We don't always feel like one flesh when we're married, do we? I mean, there's sometimes when, when that might be the most distant thought we have. But God says that he forms one flesh. Now, we got, as we look at this verse, we've we got to look carefully at what we said. So we, we, see, we see the one flesh, the marriage union, described in Genesis 2. And then we see the marriage union defined in Matthew 19, where Jesus says this, starting with verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning was made them male and female, somebody say amen, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and those two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The marriage covenant is meant to be permanent. We don't bounce in and out of marriage. You know, when I do a wedding, I, I, I just love walking people through premarital and saying, well, Scripture says this and Scripture says this, and sometimes watching the light come on in a really incredible way. And, um, but a lot of people say, I'll go, well, let's talk about the vows. Go, oh, we're going to write our own. Okay, and I've learned to just listen carefully. And uh, so one guy, I've shared this with some of you before. One guy wrote in his vows, I shall lo love you as long as love is love. <laughs> and I listened to that, and, you know, they're sitting there looking, making goo-goo eyes at each other. And I'm like, okay, that's nice. Can, can, can you explain what that means to me? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a lover forever. I said, oh, like, till death do us part? And, and, and what I hear is, those are old-fashioned. And my response is usually, sometimes things become old-fashioned because they work. <laughs> we don't want traditional vows. Well, they've become traditional because they're pretty effective at what they say. And I will usually advise those people that are getting married that want to write their own vows. Okay, we'll do that. Okay, do you mind if we go through the the traditional vows at the same time, and, oh, no, that's fine. Uh, and, and then just as frequently what I get is, I don't want the obey part in there. 
I will love you, I will cherish you, but I, I will not obey you. Now, there's a lot of baggage wrapped up in that, and, and sometimes we have seen that that, that 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 might be an issue that needs to be addressed because the marriage covenant doesn't make one of us lord over the other uh, on either side. Uh, but the traditional vows are good because they work. They've been traditional because they're good vows. And so, so we have this, this ceremony that brings all this up, that God forms one flesh. The words we say are important, and the reason that they're important is it says, well, therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. And then the, the second half of, of um, Malachi 2, 15 says that they were joined together with a portion of the Spirit in their union. The Holy Spirit, see, it's sacred. The Holy Spirit inhabits the union. Now, they're not getting more of it than they did before. It's not what this is trying to say. Not trying to say you have to be married in order to experience more of the Spirit. What it's saying is that the Spirit seals this and becomes a foundation for it. It's sacred. It's holy. And the goal of the marriage, watch this, and what was the one God seeking in this covenant? Godly offspring. Now, wait a minute. He's not saying you have to have kids. He's saying the product of this union should be an expansion of the kingdom. Watch this carefully. Because what he's saying is that union, that, that covenant that I came up with, is a witness to the world that the Spirit is part of this and it should create disciples. Now, if they're young kids, fantastic. It's not a guarantee that if you're a godly person, you're going to have godly kids. But there should be an impact on the people around us that influences them to be drawn towards God. It's a sacred and holy covenant. So guard, I love this, the, the Hebrew word is shamar. Guard, it means to watch over carefully, to care for, to protect, to preserve, to actively oversee. Adam and Eve were given charge, shamar, over the garden. They were supposed to work with it. They were supposed to take care of it. They were supposed to produce fruit from it. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He's saying, don't be faithless because God gave you the covenant. God sealed the covenant. It's a witness of him. And when you violate the covenant, you're violating everything that God stands for in your witness on this earth. You're saying it's okay to be unfaithful. It's okay to step outside of the promise and forsake it. That's why these consequences are so heavily. They're falling on the priests. They're falling on the people. They're told to guard themselves twice. 
God repeats himself in two verses. Look at 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says to the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So all this is saying is that we need to be intentional in our marriage relationship. We need to be working to preserve that relationship, guarding our spirits from doing anything that would dishonor God. So there's the the three attributes of the marriage covenant. It's dangerous, it is sacred, and it is hard work. And we keep getting back to why has God placed such a high value on marriage? Well, watch this. Because right now, if if you're living a life that's single, you're going, well, I'm out of it. (laughs) This is not about being married or single. You need to understand that. We are being shaped and formed into the image of God. God is sanctifying us. He's molding us and shaping us. And his image is faithful because God is faithful. We're being formed and molded into people that are self-sacrificing. We're being sanctified into people that are patient, kind, merciful, loving, full of grace, full of mercy, and forgiving. If we're going to be like him, if we're going to submit ourselves to God's hand upon us and making us into new creatures with new hearts, we need to start acting like it. We need to chase after him. We need to consciously do these things. We need to be forgiving, not waiting until we feel like forgiving, but actively forgiving those who hurt us. It doesn't mean that we go back for more pain, but we forgive. We give up the bitterness. We give up the resentment. We give up the, I told you so. You've always done this. You've done it again, and so on and so forth. God is forming us into his image, and that's what his image looks like. Self-sacrificing forgiveness and mercy. Okay, well, that works in our, in our interpersonal relationships. But see, we started out with the idea of family. And God saying, you're my family? You see how this works? It's not just a marriage relationship we're talking about. It's the church. It's the church. Now, the people in Malachi's time didn't know this. But if if we start looking at the whole narrative of the Bible and applying it to our lives, we'll see that this is not just for married married people. Singles are involved because all of us are in the body of Christ. The family is a reflection of the church. And we see this in Ephesians 5. Now they're talking about marriage in Ephesians 5 again. Okay? But follow me on this. Because Ephesians 5, it it describes the marriage relationship. And if you take a look at Matter of fact, turn to Ephesians 5. It 
So if you look in Ephesians 5.21, you see that this intimate relationship uh, is mutually submissive. Verse 21. A lot of people miss that because they think that the paragraph on marriage starts with verse 22. It all runs together. So it is a relationship of mutual submission. Wives submit to their husbands. Verse 22. Guys, we love that, don't we? Yeah, everybody's afraid to say yes. <laughs> but husbands love their wives in a self-sacrificing way. You see, it's mutually submissive. I, I control the thermostat in my house. But I look at my wife and I say, honey, what would you like the temperature to be? <laughs> because we are in a mutually submissive relationship. So we're trying to outserve each other. We're trying to be more humble than the other. We're not trying to dominate. We're not trying to control. I'm not the king of the house. She's not the queen. We are one flesh. <laughs> so we have this mutually submissive relationship where wives submit to the husbands. Husbands love the wives in a self-sacrificing way. Neither one is lord over the other, 27 through 29. I own my wife's body, but she owns mine. Figure that one out. And the key to all this is in verse 32, where Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's talking about the relationship that we have as a body to the church. And within that relationship, we are to express those characteristics. We are submissive one to another. We are self-sacrificing in our service to each other and to the Lord. Why? Because he sacrificed himself for us. Why are we submissive? Because he submitted to the Father and gave us the opportunity to gather here together like this because he said, not my will, but yours. So Christ did all this so that we could become one with him in a covenant of marriage that is inviolable. And we're supposed to express that covenant the same way it's described here. Marriage is a reflection of the church. It is a type of substantial, invisible, and everlasting union existing between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. See, the church isn't here for the family, brothers and sisters. The family is here for the church. The family is a witness to how the church should function. And as the family becomes that mirror for the church, and the church comes together, it's magnified. We put on display our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in how we come in here and worship individually. Worship was good this morning, wasn't it? Heather, where's Heather? Nice job. But when that works, we're doing this together. That's why we started the year off with Better Together. This is it. We're better together because God says we're one. And he gives us the guidelines for how we interact with each other right here in these passages. And this is the most intimate 
and enduring of all human relationships on earth, one that can have profound influence on the people around us. We're part of the bride of Christ. We've all been transformed. Now our job is to put him on display by being faithful, by being self-sacrificing, by being patient, by being kind, by being merciful, by being full of grace and mercy, by forgiving, by multiplying and expanding the kingdom and doing everything in dedication to him and to each other. Because, because that's what he's done for us. That's what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible intimacy that we have as your family. We thank you that you've given us a representation of the family that, that we can put on display. But Father, we pray that that would not just happen in our homes, but it would happen when we come together as, as a body, Father. It would happen in our ecclesia, in our assembly. We pray, Father, we would be conscious of the oneness that we have, Lord, that we might be able to be messengers of that love that formed the oneness, messengers of the one who hung on the cross and gave us the opportunity to put his love on display. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.